say, look at how the time goes. And welcome everybody to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. I am your host, John Allen. I just want to say before I get started with this discussion, if any of y'all want to send me an email, if you have any questions, if you have any suggestions, comments, whatever, you can send me an email to john at johnallenpod.com. And that is J-O-H-N-A-L-A-N-P-O-D.com. The Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. And today I'm speaking with Miss Liana Thompson. Hi. Hey, how you doing? You know what? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, this is pretty cool. I am so glad to be talking to you right now. We kind of met in the sense that you were in the audience when I did my previous stand-up show in Oslo. But because of the seating, you know, it was a sold out night, but because, and because of the seating, you were in the back, you know, in the, in the, uh, what, do you, what would you call that? In the courtyard, I guess, behind the venue yeah. because of the seating arrangement. So, so you didn't get to see me. I didn't get to see you, but we contacted each other afterwards and here we sit. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I actually went to that uh, event uh, to see you specifically. Um, I had read about oh, um, that you were, you know, comedian and and you know, being new to Oslo and all. I wanted to, you know, first of all, I love humor. I mean, who doesn't? And <laughs> wanted to, you know, wanted to see your act. And so I went there. I didn't have a ticket. Tried to get tickets, whatever. And they said, no, it's sold out, you know, with COVID and all, not a chance. And, I, and then the bartender said, hey, well, you know, we have the courtyard. You can't see the stage, but you can hear the stage. Yeah. And I was like, good for me. I like sitting outside anyway. So we, that's what we did. And, and we got right to the door so I could still hear. And, and, and uh, yeah, it well, was well, I'm, that's- happy, I'm happy I caught no, I was going to say, that's news to me that you went there specifically to see my act. I didn't know that. I thought you were just there for the evening, yeah. but you came specifically. That's, wow, I'm flattered. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, I went specifically to see your act. I was like, I want to see this guy's act. And I even got a treat because I didn't realize that you also sang so beautifully. And I, you know, <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> okay, this is my new best friend, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, thank you for that. Yeah, I did. Uh, I kind of broke away from my from the planned routine, and I ended up singing a cappella at the end. Um, yeah, that was an interesting night. But thank you for those compliments. But we are here to talk about you. I want to compliment you, uh, Liana. I think that what you're doing with Aquai is incredibly fascinating. I've been looking at these videos on YouTube, uh, looking at this 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 mechanical fish. And it's, it's, you know, you would think, you would think, you know, going back to maybe the days of my childhood, if you had a toy or something that was supposed to be a fish, it would just be this hard, inflexible object with a propeller in the back. But you have a automated fish and it actually swims like a fish. Looking at it, I would think that the fish would be fooled by this imposter. (laughs) (laughs) They are. (laughs) And I think that what Aquai is trying to do, your company Aquai, what you are trying to do, what you are doing is, is I mean, it's good work. Uh, 
good intentions, good results. Can you tell me what AQUI stands for? What are you guys doing? What is your purpose? Sure. So AQUI uh, actually was born out of um, a child. And uh, one little girl in particular who grew up in her father's lab while he made robots and gadgets and so forth and had actually watched her dad build at least 10 two-meter-tall robots to, um, you know, he was inspired by Westworld growing up and uh, fell in love with robots and was building robots. This is taking us back 15 years ago to study robot-human uh, interaction. So he was building them. And it's, he was a kind of a guy who had a lab next to his house. So his daughter grew up in the lab. And one day she went to school and she learned about the ocean crisis. And she came home and she said, hey, dad, um, enough with the land robots. We really need to build something to save the seas. And so that's why it's acquiring and saving the seas. So that and, and he promised her, like all good dads do. Yeah, yeah. OK, let's let's <laughs> do this. Because, you know, you're so charming and you're my kid and I can't tell you no, you know. And um, and then what was interesting about it is, is that he he actually took that promise to heart and started to investigate about, you know, the systems that were being used in the ocean. Um, he come, he, he's originally from South Africa, um, you know, grew up with, I think the only toy he had in the orphanage was a ball. Um, and he, you know, understood um, the beauty and the simplicity about mechanics and machines. That's why he built them and always was building machines to save you know, humanity, to help humanity, um, that would be simple, that could be used across the world. And he also, um, coincidentally, was somewhat of a climate change expert. So in looking at what was out there, he said, you know, we, we need to come up with systems that can withstand the future superstorms, or I should say the ones that we now see today. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and it needs to be, you know, he came out of a special effects background, worked in film in South Africa, um, you know, had built even a museum of animatronics at one point. So the whole, everything kind of came together with that promise. You, you never know when you're doing things starting in life how later they all kind of come together and have a special meaning. So, yeah, you know, he took all of those years of knowledge and, and diversification of, of, of knowledge and came up with a system that he believed was needed in order to, you know, save the seas, um, to withstand superstorms, to, to be used in scenarios across multiple um, industries, if you will. And that was the robotic fish. So yeah. the idea is that it looks and you know, Mother Nature got it right. It looks and swims like a fish. It can go fast and long distance like a tuna. It can move around like a clownfish around coral reefs if need be with the flight and flee turn. Yeah, like and I said, looking at the videos, it looks it looks like a fish. It does not look like a robot. It looks and moves like a fish. Fascinating. Yeah. That's some yeah. great that's some great technology that's been put into that. I don't understand those things, but I can see it and I can appreciate the technology that has gone into that. It's fascinating. Yeah, I think especially unique is that it's really affordable. So what we've managed to do is create that system 
um, so that it can indeed be used, you know, across industries because it is so affordable. Our patents are in the mechanics and design. And, you know, there are other robot fish out there um, being built for different reasons. You know, our whole mandate is ocean tech for positive impact. So we're really, you know, really hardcore and staying true to that mission in terms of how the technology or for what the technology is being used. Um, in, uh, in the case of a startup, because, you know, what happened was I actually met this individual that we're talking about who designed a robot fish. Now, let's um, say his name. His name is Simeon. What's his last name? His name is Simeon Peterkowski. Yeah. From South and Africa. So he's he's the man behind the actual technology, the animatronics and and, and the design of, of 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 this fish, correct? Yeah, he's the mind behind the machine. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> As I like to say. He um I met him in in uh Israel. Well. And I was actually, okay, so my background, I come originally, I was a journalist, you know, I, I also, you know, did radio and print and, and television, and I was actually in Israel um, when I met Simeon. I was doing a story on the Q, as in James Bond 007 Q. You know, after a lifetime of bombs, I finally said, I'm going to go for a Q. Ah, there you go. What is thing I could do? Yeah. Much happier, much happier. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my cue was uh, and is Simeon. And when I met him, he was obsessing about the proof of concept, about this fish. And um, long story short, we, you know, I broke all the rules and had a thing with my subject. <laughs> and, <laughs> my subject and, um, and when we came to my native, so I'm originally from, from the U.S. I was, you know, born and raised in California and Idaho. And, you know, I'd lived, obviously, when I was with the New York Times quite a while in New York. So when we came back to the U.S., my native, you know, we did a stint in New York. I, for about a year, did some media consulting. And then I was like, okay, I don't want to do media anymore. You know, I also had a difficult time kind of reconnecting with that whole industry, having been out in the Middle East for a good decade. I'd had companies in, in the Middle East and stuff. Um, and so I just said, okay, hey, why don't we take the thing, you know, one of your inventions, of which you had many, and the one you care the most about, and let's make a company, a quai, and let's both dedicate our time to something really positive. You know, we'd seen so much as a conflict reporter, and I was in Haiti, also uh, right after the earthquake. I'd just seen so much of the worst in humanity and the, mo and the most beautiful aspects. Right. I can imagine. Yeah. And um, I said, let's just dedicate our time to doing something really positive. Um, I, you know, coming from California, clearly I had a relationship with the ocean, yeah. but I was never, you know, I was a scuba diver, I am a scuba diver, you know, and um, so we just, and Simeon coming from Cape Town, he grew up on a longboard. I mean, he was always full fate. Yeah. So it just kind of came together, you know, and... But, but, but Maybe, maybe there was some, well, I can imagine that would be a drastic change. You probably had a moment of anxiety, whether that anxiety was positive or negative. I would imagine you had a moment of, of uh, stress, more or less, to go from your journalistic background 
and start walking towards a future in tech, in startup. There's no, I, I don't see much of a connection between those things. It's, to me, that is a fascinating jump. Can you tell me about that process? Where did you get the guts to do that? <laughs> um, okay, so I actually, it's not my first startup. Oh, okay. Um, so, I'll, you know, when I was finishing grad school in Washington, D.C., I, you know, I had aspirations. I wanted to be the next Christiana Amanpour. Uh, and yeah. Being a foreign correspondent, seeing the world. You know, I always, you know, my impetus was on travel. Um, and I knew I didn't want to wear a suit. So business, international business wasn't going to happen for me. No. And so journalism kind of came natural. I was a good storyteller. And so I just found myself doing that and, you know, going to, to different places. I had already... You know, I, I'd already driven, you know, in terms of risk and guts. I, I drove from San Francisco to Honduras and back for six months in a, no, in like a Volkswagen 1974 bus. Oh, wow. Huh. <laughs> right between uh, uh, undergrad and, and grad school. Yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I said, hey, with my partner at the time, I said, let's go. And he actually, uh, I'll get back to that, but I said, let's let's take a trip. And we were going to drive to Brazil. And I had my, I was a single mom at the time. My, my daughter was, I think, turned five in Belize. And, um, and so we, you know, we started to drive to, to Brazil. I got as far as Honduras when I got a scholarship or fellowship to go to school in Washington, D.C., um, I was really into radio at the time, so, you know, it was the dean of the school used to run um, um, a show on NPR, so I was really excited about that. So, the guts issue was never a problem. The guts were there. That's gutsy to drive. That's gutsy to... The guts was, were always there. Then after grad school, I... Um, you know, I spoke to Easton Jordan, who at the time was the vice president of CNN, and I had been working there. And, and he said, if you want to be a foreign correspondent, just go be one. And, you know, just go do it. So he was very <laughs> integral in my, like, not waiting and working your way up the corporate ladder, but just go. So I moved, actually, to Budapest in 90, I think, 90, late 93. Yeah. Um, formed a production company with uh, someone I'd met in Germany when I was working at ZDF. And, um, and that was, you know, pretty, you know, risky. I sure. went there and, you know, again, a single mom and, you know, and, and, and so had that, that one didn't, you know, work out for different reasons, mostly, you know, not very good partnerships with the Hungarian side of things. But then, um, I was picked up there by what became the New York Times. Okay. So I had covered areas of risk. You know, I was in Southeast Turkey. I, you know, covered the Balkans, if you will. Um, you know, so that was never an issue. Then when I, you know, I was in 9-11, uh, at that point in time, I was on staff with the New York Times. Um, and when 9-11 happened... And I remember a, a good friend of mine who was working also for Reuters. She and I were in the hole. And after that, I, I at that time, I had already kind of become an executive at the New York Times. And I missed being in the field. And so that was when I was like, okay, I'm going go to go to the Middle East. Um, my partner at the time, um, I was also pregnant with a, a 
you know, a new child, um, and the father was Israeli or is Israeli. And so we, you know, I made the decision to go to Israel and then, you know, spent time there, which was not, which was also, you know, during the peak of the Intifada. And I think I was on my way to a bus bombing when I went into labor or something. Yet another example of you having guts already. <laughs> yeah. So the wasn't it. Um, I think, and, and then after Haiti, I teamed up with a few other people um, and we formed a company. And this was, uh, it was a really cool company. If we, and the idea was that you shot through an app on your phone. This is when people started to use their phones all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah. So what we learned in Haiti was that, you know, a lot of, you know, everything, the first thing that went up was self towers. People were, you know, we were finding people on, you know, Twitter basically was saying, hey, there's somebody trapped here. Can you help? You know, all of yeah. this is going through like Twitter or through the phone. And so what we learned was, you know, why don't we develop an app where everybody, doesn't matter where you are, shoot through the app, comes, the video comes to our back end, and then we sell it to like Reuters or the usual suspects. I see. Yeah. Because my partner actually, pretty much everything you saw the first initial days out of Haiti were shot by my partner in the company. Oh. Um, who, you know, sold the footage to all, you know, everything where everything you saw in the news or whatever. So he now, what on. year, what year are we talking here? So roughly? 2010, yeah. 2010 was uh, January, 2010 was the earthquake. And, okay. And, um, so so you, he was one of the first person to be there and, and get the first footage out. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So I actually met him there when, in Haiti working, and then afterwards we formed a company with a few other Israelis um, to do this. Um, for whatever reasons, you know, there's a lot of issues in startups. It didn't, it didn't take off completely at the end. I came back to the U.S. and, you know, Simi and I, and that's, that's when I was like, you know what? I looked around at media in the U.S. I, I, you know, we, I, I was involved with the early stages of reality television, you know, so did some really cool films in Cuba for Showtime or, or put Anthony Bourdain on television. Um, you, you put Anthony Bourdain on television. Yeah. Well, me in the New York Times. So, yeah. So, and you so, were, and you were, and at that time you were an exec or fairly high up in the, in the hierarchy there at the New York Times, right? Yeah. I mean, for the new, uh, you know, <laughs> 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 I mean, it sounds really glamorous, but the, the truth is, is that um, I started with uh, with uh, a company that was bought out by the New York Times, and they had, were the first ones to do one of the first entities to do reality television. Um, Trauma, Life in the R was one of the shows that kind of put them on the map. I remember and that. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a you know camera woman, then I was a producer, then a series producer, and then ultimately an executive producer, and you know went from producing trauma to things like maternity ward, paramedics. Um, I think they had a show I didn't oversee that one. Like Police Force was one. Um, you know Wall Street, and then we started doing really cool stuff like you know hours for Showtime. So I did. Um, the Cuba Hour, Dreaming in New Cuba. I did um, uh, Jimmy and Sly, The Skin I'm In. Um, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yes. Yeah, that, was, that was a really one of my... Uh, I came in late in the game on that um, as an executive producer to kind of get it set up. And 
and that was really cool. I loved editing, you know, yeah. to, their, to their music and stuff. And It's so cool uh, that I'm speaking to you and you had something to do with these shows that I, I, I remember these shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Isn't that amazing that we, that we were able to meet like this? I think it is I anyway. <laughs> but Tony, so Anthony was, uh, Tony was, was writing this book, Kitchen Confidential was a hit. So the Times um, went to him and said, hey, um, if you want to do another, you know, it was, a, it was, I think, already at the top, you know, bestsellers list, New York Times bestseller list. They said, well, and, and Tony's mom, by the way, worked at the Times, you know, she, okay. was, uh, she worked a long time there. So, so they went in and said, why don't you, you're going to do another book um, and why don't we make a TV series out of it? So I was the executive producer. I was the one assigned to make it happen. Um, and me with, and, and like, you know, the president of, of New York, of New York Times television, uh, Christian Gwynn. And so we, we put together a team um to go and follow Tony around his tours, uh, which came a which came a cook's tour, and at the team, you know that that we put together or that we hired, or I should say, um, uh, which is Lydia Tanalia, sorry, Lydia Tanalia, and they actually had just gotten married. So their honeymoon was traveling around, I think, Cambodia and Vietnam with Tony. And Tony had never done TV. So it wasn't like the Tony everyone knows and loves. It was like, Tony, you're going to have to say something when you <laughs> get off the train. I can't imagine that, Tony. I cannot imagine that, Anthony Bourdain. I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> Well, let me just tell you that Lydia and and Chris, who are our dear friends um, and still today, um, are incredibly talented, and they were obviously the obvious people to take to be the series producers on on that first series, um, which aired um, on the Food Network. And they, you know, they're Chris is an amazing writer. Both of them are amazing, you know, cinematographers and producers and people, just real people. Yeah. So they built a wonderful relationship with Tony. And even um, after Tony and, and them, they left the Times and they formed their own company called Z Point Z Productions. I think it is, um, uh, and continued to make shows on, on um, Travel Channel and then ultimately CNN, um, you know, with Tony. So that's, but yeah, to short, the short answer is yes, I, I uh, was this executive and co-creator of the first series um, with Anthony or Tony. And then, um, and like I said, I had enough and I went to the Middle East and did a couple of more shows, quit the times, stayed in the Middle East, had a startup came back to the U.S. and had the startup bug. I mean, I don't know if you know anything about Israel and the startup world, but, you know, they're like two, number two in the world from yes. Silicon Valley. Yeah. You know, instant messaging, which we all use, is an Israeli invention. That is their thing, yes, that's true. Not a lot of people think about that, but that is the truth. It all started yeah. in Israel, yeah. yeah. So so you, you got bit by the startup bug. What is it that made you, was it a fate type of thing that you just happened to have met Simeon and then his passion 
kind of infected you and then you went in that direction? Or were you already thinking about um, doing something that would be good work for the ocean? Oh, no. I wasn't thinking at all about doing something no. great for them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to like, you know, no. no. For me, it was, um, you know, my passion has always been traveling, um, meeting people. I love to find the beauty in humanity in the worst scenarios. Um, I think some of the most touching moments I've ever witnessed have been in, in among rubble, if you will, yeah. um, in either as a metaphor or literally. Yeah. Um, so for me, when I met Simeon, who my life was a bit of a rubble at, at the time when I met him. So it was, um, yeah, call it fate, um, if you will. But we, you know, he just really had something very, very special about him. He's a very unique individual as a person um i think i I mentioned you know he kind of you know his his mom passed when he was maybe 12 um he grew up in in, uh, with his brothers in a a children's home in in cape town um he that's a rough start rough start um heart of gold tough tough guy you know he looked like jason stantham when i met him so he was good looking too (laughs) (laughs) It helps. helps. He was also, you know, about a decade younger than me. I'm going to put that out there. Hey. I don't know what works, right? Um, No, so he, and he was um, just also a wonderful father. Um, Really always put, you know, he he has his daughter. um, We have our you know, he's a stepfather, but he really stepped up and became an amazing father to my children as well. That's beautiful. Uh, in fact, my daughter looks just like his daughter. They're the same age and everything. Oh, <laughs> so it's oh nice. So they have a yeah. combined um, uh, sibling slash friendship uh, thing going yeah. on there. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Absolutely. That's beautiful. And so, yeah, I mean, when we, like I said, when we came to the U.S., I didn't want to do media anymore. It was such a mess. Reality TV had turned to sewage TV. Um, yeah, you guys created a monster. <laughs> you really yeah, did that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't say that I created it. I, you know, I have to give that those kudos to the people you know before me. But I just. I proliferated. <laughs> there you go. That's the word. That's the word. Proliferated. <laughs> that's well, a hard, that's a hard. What we did though was <laughs> real. It wasn't the stuff now. It wasn't like, how can we find the lowest denominator in, yeah. the, in the United States society and or put that and show that it's okay to be disgusting and rude and belligerent. And, you know, it was, it, it, I think it's where, some of those early, you know, those talk shows, um, those early, early ones, you know, the, uh, the Jerry Springer meets, yeah. you know, kind of it was a convergence of the two ideas. Because when we did it, it was verite, it was interesting. Yes. You yeah. know, on the wall. It was much more maselish as yeah. opposed to, you know. Well, now it's like, just a bunch of garbage that's being put out for entertainment. And, and, it, and it appeals to the lowest the lowest uh, 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 primal instincts that we have, you know, uh, 
it's it's garbage and what really bothers me is that people aren't just being entertained by it now we're seeing the younger generation using it as a guideline for how they should live their lives it's terrible yeah. uh we see a lot of uh i see a lot of norwegians who look at american reality tv and now they're starting to think that that's how americans are well i mean i mean we are some of us are obviously look at our society right now do yeah. you think somebody as disgusting as donald trump who i refuse to put the p word in front of um could be could hold that office if it if it hadn't have been i mean i don't think he would have been able to get that office no, no. had it not have already been a social <laughs> devolution <laughs> <laughs> well yeah well well his his brand of reality tv made it cool it made it kind of okay to be an asshole to say it straight up and that for some reason that i can't understand appealed to people i totally get the thing that americans were ready for a quote unquote non-politician i get that i was ready for that as well but yeah. but this guy this yeah. guy really you know it, it's there was something about his brand of reality tv that made it okay to be a jerk made it okay to be a jackass and and for some reason people wanted to be led by a person like that i don't understand it and i and i say this without without you know i'm not going to be like hillary clinton and call them a basket of deplorables but i do question i do question their thought process i don't understand how they could have voted for that man well i think it's you know let's let, let's talk about that because it is a societal change um which is you know can, as, as as societies do they're they're constantly changing and evolving or in this case you sure. know not the best if you take away basics basics from humanity whether it's education right so let's talk about who's getting an education who's not getting an education and you're you're depriving the mind so if you're depriving the mind you're depriving um, basic things like, you know, how can I feed my family? Now, I have five brothers and sisters, and I can ask, and my dad, you know, my dad had a tire shop. Yeah, so I grew up in, in t around tires. <laughs> <laughs> I love the model of a garage, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know we used to play hide and seek and uh, stack all those tires. Yeah. But um, no, so in, I, you know, I asked my dad, I said, hey, dad, and, and he, you know, he worked for himself. So, you know, he went, he like, he quit being a general manager of Goodyear or whatever to, um, we moved like every year because he would open different shops and then get it up and running and we'd move another year. So like by the time I was 12, I think I'd gone to seven different schools or something like oh, wow. that. So, um, I, and then he quit that and he opened his own tire shop in Idaho in Coeur d'Alene and that's, you know, what brought us up to Idaho. And I asked him, you know, did you have so much, you have five kids to feed. I mean, we had a nice house. My mom drove an MG sports, you know, convertible and, you know, it wasn't like he was a, didn't have a, a you know, wasn't a doctor or a lawyer and, no. and we were okay and all had health insurance, you know, as far as I remember. Um, and he said, you know, it, it just, the world, the United States has become so different from the place that he grew up, the place I grew up. Oh, yeah. You know, 
Yeah. And, and when you deprive so much of just basics to humans, they'll do anything to, to get theirs. So do you think the people, do you think the people of, or at least that, that, that base that supports the, the, the uh, uh, Donald Trump, do you think they were just squeezed for so hard for so long that they wanted a change and they didn't really put much thought into what kind of a change or what kind of a person would be the face of that change? Do you think that's it? Desperation? They were squeezed so hard for so long? That and clearly idolization. I think that, uh-huh. you know, they did, they, what you always did get was the ability to turn on your telly. So yeah. if you're, you know, if you're fed, I fundamentally, hands down, do believe in brainwashing. Oh, sure, sure. Possible, and I do feel that the long play by entities like Fox News that has been going on for decades has infiltrated the minds. Yeah. And this is coming from media that. You know, if you're told something long enough, you're going to need to start believing it. Sure. And one of the key things in propaganda is you always take part of the truth and kind of skew it a little bit. It's not like you make up something completely, you know, preposterous. You take the truth and you just skew it. Yeah. And that has been going on for generations. I think also just, you know, the the what's happened in terms of the lack of, you know, the dissolve of the middle class, when you see so much of the middle class, kind of the separation between the rich and the poor, the 1%, the haves and the have-nots, and those haves are all coming out of places like Silicon Valley or, you know, Tech, and and you're not having access in your education to have the ability to even understand that you can do this too. You know, a lot of that is, oh, I can do that. You mentioned, you mentioned the propaganda machine and, uh, in almost in the same sentence, you mentioned Fox news. Uh, what do you say to the people who are listening to Fox news and those people say, well, CNN does the same thing. It's just on the other side. What do you say to those people? Personally, I don't see that correlation. I yeah, I'm not going to say too much. What What do you think about that? Do you think CNN is just the polar opposite of Fox News? I tell those people to read. What I do say to those people, I tell them to turn off the telly and read. You know, why, how, why on earth can you imagine that you're getting information? It's not like the information we got when we were kids, which always was anyway funneled uh, through, you know, checks and balances, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, what we can say or not say. I mean, having been inside media, I do know that there are conversations about whether or not something can be published or, or broadcasted and how that is, especially when you're with larger entities and powerful ones like the Times, you know, how does that reflect on our society, on our, our security as a nation? Sure. Uh, I do think that, and I do say this, to turn off the television and read. I mean, especially with the internet, there's so many other sources of information well, that, that can also come from outside the U.S. Don't just exactly now that kind of rhymes. That kind of rhymes with what I say. First of all, I don't think CNN is this propaganda machine for the left. I don't think so. I see in general that they are holding politicians uh, responsible. They're trying to hold them responsible for what they say and do. 
and it just may appear that they are some sort of anti-right-wing news station because I'm sorry to all of my right-wing listeners if you if there are any, but I think that the current Republican Party is a bunch of thugs. I think they are a bunch yeah, of cowards. I think, I think I think they're bowing to this leader that we have uh, that we've had for the last uh, almost four years, and. I believe that CNN is trying to hold those people responsible for their action or inaction. And then I say to, I, I say that, I say that to people. And then on top of that, I say, why are you only watching or listening to one news source? If you think that one side or the other is so far out of whack with what is, with what is current, why would you not analyze that? compare it to several news sources and you might find that what you consider propaganda is just a reflection of what is right and when i say right i mean correct do you see what i'm saying several news several news sources listening to to reading several news sources listening to several news sources can clear up a lot of this i can read the right wing um stuff sure i mean I, like I said i finished high school in Coeur d'Alene, idaho that is certainly a red place and i have multiple discussions some of them more polite than others with you know former classmates who are incredibly anti-obama and huge supporters of trump a, a really good friend of mine was integral in getting him uh you know elected um, I'll never forget the time she came to me right before he was starting to run and she said, Hey, can you help us with his website? And I was like, no. <laughs> and who, who is she? Is she somebody, is she somebody that people would, a name that people would no, recognize? No, it's, uh, yeah. It's, uh, she was very, yeah. It, she's in his, a lot of the pictures in the background, but, um, I, I don't feel comfortable mentioning her name unless I ask. Okay. Her. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, she, you know, from from my perspective, when, when Simeon and I came back to the U.S. and everybody was laughing, this is, you know, we came back in 2013, oh. um, in the summer of 2013, and people were laughing. I don't think he had a, had the nomination yet, had announced anything. So we knew, though, when we landed and we had conversations, that was the problem. The problem in the U.S. is nobody know, knew how to look around what was going on outside what they yes. would do. And for us, it was so obvious that while everybody on the left was laughing and, oh, they're never going to let, we were going, you guys are so off. You are missing what's happening in this country. You're so caught up in your own little, you know. <laughs> well, sure. I think, I think the worst thing... Well, sure. I think the worst thing that Hillary Clinton did was when she started with her comments about the basket of deplorables and whatnot. Uh, if she would have rather stretched out her hand to these people who felt disenfranchised and come up with a concrete plan on how to include them in, in her agenda, I do believe it would have been a totally different result, but she, yeah, she just wrote them, she, she wrote them off and she assumed that, that, uh, that Trump was such a horrible person that he could never win. She didn't have her ear to the ground. Uh, the entire democratic party did not have their ear to the ground. No, I mean, I, uh, you know, I have to say that 
so I'm that, you know, 50 something woman white, you know, that everybody thinks would be waving either the Toronto Trump or the Hillary Clinton flag. I, um, I was from the get go, a huge Bernie Sanders supporter. Yeah. Um, that's me. Yeah. Um, you know, I really believe that having lived in so many countries as I have that are the balance between capital and social, I think that it's a, I think that countries that do not take care of their people and give everyone a fair shake to healthcare and to education are not going to be um, uh, successful, if you will, in the future. I remember when communism fell. So let's talk about what happened with communism. Communism fell mainly because they need, the world was shifting from a political world to an economic world, and they needed to enter the economic game. And they were never going to be able to enter the economic game unless they let go of their so-called political structure. And that's when communism, quote-unquote, fell. If you look at where, um, you know, granted it's not the Soviet Union, but if you look at where Russia is, it's a lot of the same players. They just had to rebrand themselves. Yes, yeah. okay? So now let's look at the United States. So capitalism, which everyone thought was the winner in, you know, the Cold War, look where capitalism has gotten us today. So you have, look at the U.S., which is the king of capitalism, and you have more poverty, more um, children who are going hungry, families, not just the one guy who's a little, had a rough break, got an alcoholic and is homeless. We're talking about families, full-on yes. families, yes. living in tents. I lived in San Diego. You go through, you know, the high, near the highway in San Diego. It's like, it's like tent city was in Haiti after the earthquake. It's like a you whole know? neighborhood living under some of these bridge overpasses. It's, yeah, it's, you have so much poverty. Yeah. You have so much sickness. Let's talk about sickness. There we are talking about people who do not get any type of medication or even, um, yeah, whether it's addiction or not addiction or mental health or whatnot, that have no nowhere to turn, no, re, you know, no, no support structure. They are, can be absolute um, mem- you know, positive members of society with sure. a little bit of with a sure. little bit of violence, with maybe a little bit of mess. But you know what I think is sad? It's, I'm sorry to jump in here. I just got to throw this point in there. You know what I think is very sad? It's bad enough that people are living in those conditions. But what really is sad is the breakdown of what it means to be an American. Because I hear so many uh, of our fellow Americans say they don't care. If you're in that situation, it's your fault. If you're in that situation, well, uh, take a hold of the American dream and pull yourself out of there. Uh, it's not my responsibility. It's not my responsibility to pay for your health care, pay for your way out of poverty. I hear that so much, and it and it breaks my heart. That's not what being an American is all about. Well, I thought we were supposed to stand together. No, but let's talk about capitalism again here, because capitalism is really, remember the 80s, remember the me generation, you know, it's all about how much I can get for me, so we're going again, everything happens over generational, it's not like an idea that just happened and that's where we flipped in the day and the night, no, this is over time, so what has happened is you have a a few generations, a couple, who have this me, 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 I gotta get mine, I need more, I need more, I need more, 
And what that does is you lose empathy. You lose the compassion yes. for the person. So you think, well, I did. Okay, let's talk about, well, I did it. Okay, me. I was a single mom. I was pregnant at 19, gave birth at 20. I was on welfare. I was not educated, right? I did not have, hadn't started college. No. And if anyone can say, oh, well, pull yourself up. I did. You know, I went from that to being an executive with the New York Times. I think I paid off in one year taxes what I received in four years on welfare. Right? (laughs) And, you know, so I I paid back. You paid back. I paid back. I was on the dole. I paid back. I cashed the food stamps. I know what Rick cheese tastes like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yummy, yummy. <laughs> have you have you had Wick peanut butter though? Oh, that's where I draw my line. You, you haven't had, you haven't had, had five boxes of macaroni and cheese and survive <laughs> on that for a <laughs> <laughs> So you've been, so you've been there. <laughs> been there. Been there. And I, I mean. I do think that once we lose as a society compassion for one another, and that includes... And that's what's happening. I think we're in the middle of that right now. Yeah. No, that's exactly what happened. And I I don't think that you can say that it's capitalism to blame. I think it's the mishandling. This gets back to what you said about what's going on in our Congress. What, you know, it's not just the president. It's not just one man, because everyone knows that one man is really a puppet. And a lot of action is going on in the background. And yes, the DNC screwed up in a big way, in a big way. At least Donald Trump, at least the GOP allowed their people to choose their first candidate, right? That's what I say. They got what they wanted. But let's talk about Congress. Let's talk about Mitch McConnell. Let's oh, talk gosh. about who are real people who are just who are who sold out and are supposed to be representatives and who have sold out the American public and are in the in, it's not even like they're in the pockets of the corporations because they basically are owners, they're stockholders in the corporations. Exactly. And and what I was gonna say, because um, you know, some people on the right would say, Well, if you don't like this, then vote. And oh, we voted, but our representatives are still you know, Mitch McConnell is still there. But I say the voting process has become so twisted and corrupted with with a couple of things, with gerrymandering. Good Lord, the Republicans are so good at that, to, uh, make, doing the gerrymandering uh, game uh, to their advantage. So gerrymandering, but also this thing where in Kentucky, now I hope I don't get these numbers mixed up, but I believe they went from over three, was it over, th- uh, yeah, so th- I don't know, a hundred, like 100,000 voting uh, state polling stations down to less than 30,000. They cut away people's opportunity to cast their vote. And I think about if you're sick, if you're elderly, or especially now in these times of COVID, it must be hell to try and cast your vote in Kentucky. Why, why are these Republican-led states doing things like that? Because it's to their advantage. That's why. Well, you know, let's just say like it is. The GOP are much more strategic. They know how to fight. They know how to plan. Their PR is so superior to the DNC. Yeah. Democrats, you know. Are the Democrats too nice? Are they too soft? Because the Republicans are playing hardball. The Republicans, you know, they know, 
Um, if we shut down uh, polling stations, that's going to make it harder for mostly Democratic, uh, Democratic voters uh, to, 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 vote, to vote. So that's exactly what we're going to do. And they do it, and they do it effectively. They're, they're kind of callous. They're kind of hard-hearted. They're not afraid to toe the line, that narrow line between constitutional and unconstitutional. They're taking advantage of, uh, of uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1964 um, uh, being kind of torn to shreds over the last few years. They're taking advantage of that. It's rather cold-hearted. It's very cynical. It's not very American, but they're doing it. Should the Democrats play that game a little bit better and be a little bit harder? A little bit tougher, a little bit more callous. Well, I don't. I think that um, the Democrats themselves are, you know, like much like the Republicans. The Republicans have kept going more and more right. The Democrats are more and more left. I think where where what we're missing is much more of that central centrist thought. Um, Does that mean a I third think, party? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Do we need a third I party? I agree. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, not, the split is, I don't think, is healthy. Even in business, let's take business. You know what? You never have a company where one person has 50% and the other one has 50%. Yeah. It doesn't work. No. You have to have at least one of them have 51%. You know, otherwise, this is what's, you know, yes, third party, huge proponent of third party. I also think that, that um, this is maybe, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I, I do think that every country has its time. And the U.S. had its time after World War II when it went to, you know, a two-pillar, you know, politically anyways, the world became a two-pillar society um, globally. Um, And I do think that the U.S. did lose its footing. Um, It did not, it lost its manufacturing. It was really about being cheap, 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 cheap for for the populace so that the that you know the same people keep getting elected um it's it's not it didn't look at the big picture no we're a young country we want it now it's like reality we want our 15 minutes of fame we want the the payout right away i want to be a startup so i can sell it for a billion all of that quick 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 there's not the long strategy there's not the long term of where where we're going so i think the u.s kind of has has lost its footing you know, significantly. So who, also, so who also has the good footing now? Also, the fact that we put all of our taxes in a military complex. Yes. And that came out of the mouths, that came out of the education, that came out of the... I couldn't believe it after being a decade away coming back to the U.S. and looking at the infrastructure. So yeah. like, what the hell? What happened here? Everything was dilapidated. I see it too. You know, um, I've been in Norway for almost 20 years and I've only been back to the States a handful of times, not even five times, what, maybe four times I've been home in 20 years. And it's like each time I get back there, I see that degradation. I see it. So I flew into JFK, right? Oslo to JFK, which is what? Uh, how long is the flight? 10, 11 hours? Maybe? Roughly. Something like yeah. that. So... I land at JFK, and we're talking JFK. We're not talking, you know, some, oh, we're talking JFK, right? Yeah. (laughs) New York City, main airport. And it took me, there was so much infrastructure delays just to get into the city. It took me like four hours. It took me longer to get home. That's pathetic. 
in Manhattan, but then the actual flight almost. It was just insane. We had to get off the subway, wasn't working. We waited for hours and then it came. And then, you know, I'm a startup, so I'm always taking the train. I'm not doing the. <laughs> and I think, well, let me tell you that it was so frustrating. So the infrastructure was just. It's just so shockingly horrific, and all of the money and the all of the money is going to this military complex. And the worst part of it, you know, what really irritates me is how what it's done to the citizens. So if you look at if you look at other countries, and when the citizens finally stood up and said, "Hey, enough," it was because they had nothing. But they also were the first ones who wanted to participate in any type of. Um, you know, aggressive act. Yeah. Yeah. So when people are always saying, oh, thank you for, someone said the other day, their son was serving, thank you for serving and keeping us safe here in the U.S. And I was just like, wow. Because for me, I feel like those in charge are using hostile acts in other countries and are using some of the, the the people who really need a break as fodder. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, no, stop. Well, I think a lot of this comes from perspective. I know for me being an expat and living here in Norway. And, and, and like I said, you know, every time I would go back home, I would see, uh, <laughs> I, I was witness to the downfall of, of at least the, the infrastructure, you know, the roads, bridges, uh, airports and all that kind of stuff. And so, so that comes of perspective. And I wonder if the average American, you know, not expats, but Americans living on American soil, I wonder if they are to a certain degree blind for what's going on or rather accepting of what's going on. Maybe they see it, but they just accept it. They have no, the majority have no idea at how the rest of the world has actually in technology yeah. gone ahead. So what you hear yeah. a lot in the U.S. is we have at least our freedoms. Now, I have to tell you that I don't feel free in the U.S. So I, my son has autism. And one of my biggest fears when I went back to the U.S. was that he wasn't going to react accordingly to any type of demands by the police force. And I even had, you know, you know we lived in a, in a small little island in, um, in Coronado. And so when we first moved there, we even like went, you know, to the police and said, oh, it's my son, he's on the spectrum. He's probably going to ask you if you tell him to stop. Why? You know, because he wants to understand everything. Yeah. yeah. And that was a big fear for me. I mean, I know, you know, you worked, I heard your, your, you're coming home podcast, the other, you know, the one you, you did on what's happening in racism in the U.S., which is a whole other subject that people do not understand that it's systematic yeah. and that, and, the, and they say it's not a problem, which is so baffling to me. But, you know, you're a big black guy. So yeah. you know what that fear is. You don't, you're free in Norway. You're not worried. Exactly. Well, you know, people talk about. Them in the U.S. when you get out of the U.S. and you're free, if you fall down and break your arm, you're not going to go bankrupt. Exactly. I, you know, I'm a I'm a living example of that in the sense that, uh, well, well, like like you said, I'm uh, I'm this big black guy, um, and being a big black guy uh, in any kind of um, 
any kind of situation with the police in the United States, I will fear for my safety. I will. Uh, and no one can tell me that I shouldn't because I was a police officer for seven years in the States. I know what they, I know the mindset. Okay. Um, and yet they say I'm free in the States, but here in Norway, that's not an issue. It's not, I, I don't fear for my physical safety. Of course, the police have problems here in Norway. None of them are perfect. Of course, some of them may have some sort of racial, racial bias, but I don't fear for my life. There's not a culture for that here in Norway, well, but there is in the United States, the land of the free. And I, and when I, when were you a policeman there? From 96 till 2002. So you know what happened after 2002, right? Well, so after, after when, I, I think it might have even happened prior to that. So a lot of the training that takes place with the police forces kind of shifted um, into more urban training. Yes, so of you course. Were yeah. For Israelis, actually, who are used to urban warfare, training the U.S. police force. Well, and that word warfare and police, to me, it just doesn't jive, but it is being used. I'm sorry? That's when, remember the whole dialogue about to serve and protect? Exactly, yeah. It it, it shifted away from that when they were being trained more um, from... From anti terrorists, urban warfare. I was was interviewed by a newspaper in Seattle a couple of weeks ago, and that journalist asked me about this whole warrior type of thing um, uh, when when it's applied to police work. And I said, if you're going to use the word warrior in any kind of correlation with police work, then the word peace should come before it. In other words, you are a peace warrior. You are a warrior for peace as a police officer. And again, that goes back to the old adage, serve and protect. Um, But these days, and again, this was back when I was a police officer. It's very common for us to refer to ourselves as peace warriors. But now today you see this militarizing of the police. You know, they're wearing... uh, you know, the Kevlar vest, they're wearing, you know, they have the, they have the armored uh, vehicles and whatnot. And you hear them, they, they say this themselves, that it's like war in the streets of the United States. I don't see any place for the police to be conducting war or warlike actions against American citizens. And I think that is at the core of the problem in the, in the modern police and in, in the modern policing in the United States, they need reforms. And the first reform they need is to change the attitude of the police officers themselves. They are not there to conduct war or any warlike operations. They are there. The result is a direct result of the risks that are, that are forming. Um, so if you read, for instance, every year the you know the Pentagon sends out, and it's accessible. You can if people read and want to research and actually you know find something out there. Um, the major risks in the U.S. are from uh, you know from groups within the U.S. Kind of what we're seeing now more of these. Um, I'm not talking about what's happening in the riots, and I'm talking about the, the right-wing anti-governmental these groups, and a lot of the the worry in the administration or, you know, from the Pentagon, at least what's been released is um, a result of also climate change because you're having a lot of issues with hunger. You're going to have, you know, a lot of issues with um, 
um, migration as well as a result of climate change. So yeah. a lot of tactics, and obviously after 9-11, there was the terrorism. So that was a big industry, is a big industry. And over the time, when you, know, when you are doing things like targeted killing, which, you know, all of the presidents, including Obama, you know, was was his numbers on targeted killing was were pretty, pretty high. Yeah. You, know, you are basically a, a, a many countries. And I'm not saying that there were, are not players out there who, who don't like the U.S. or, you know, are, are, are doing terrorist acts against the U.S., both outside and inside the soil. But, um, you know, you, the world has changed so much that the, even internally the police force has had to become much more militarized. But the problem with that is that you're, it's, it's, like, it's like privacy. So do you take everyone's privacy away because you're worried about the whatever number of, you know, in the same with, with the militarization of the police force? Are you so worried about the odd issues that you've basically trained the entire police forces across the United States to look at every member of society as a potential threat? Yeah. As opposed to, and, and obviously in different areas, you know. Sure. Black guy is a bigger threat, but even someone who has a child on, on the spectrum with autism, if, if you if you don't respond according to the way they want you to, you are at risk of using losing your life. And the problem is, there's no recourse. Exactly, exactly. There's there's there seems to be no more nuance. Um, either you know, either you're cooperating with the police. Or you're not, and if you're not, and, and if you're not, and if you're not, any any type of physical violence that the police put on you is justified, and there's something wrong with that. There's no, yeah, I don't know. Whew. That, that, that's a, that's a heavy discussion, and I and I, no, go ahead, go ahead. I I don't think um, defunding the police is is the way to go. I, I would say refunding. I would say, well, and when I say refund, I mean, just wipe the budget clean and then reapply a more, reapply that budget and make it more compassionate, make it more realistic. Uh, you know, if you take X number of dollars away from police forces so and, and stop buying them these armored vehicles and put X number of dollars into mental health care, I guarantee you there will be less need for those armored vehicles because of the mental health issue being dealt with. For example... Uh, if there was X number of dollars taken away from the police force and put into um, building up some of these inner city neighborhoods without gentrifying them, I'm talking build them up and do something, you know, and that's a long process, a long discussion, but build them up and do something so that those people who live in those neighborhoods have a little bit of hope, like every other American has a little bit of hope, make it do something with the infrastructure, busing, uh, subway, uh, train system, something, so that these people, if the jobs aren't there, they can get to where the jobs are. If they would put money into things like that, uh, they will then begin to build up these inner city neighborhoods, which will then require less policing. And that opens to door, the door for a better relationship with the police. Well, I absolutely. I mean, I agree with you 100%. I think that the issue is bigger than the police. I do think that um, you know, you're 
the, the fundamental issue is the U.S. has never dealt with its history. No, never. Well, look so, at everyone arguing about systemic racism. That that's right there. Right there is something. Hundred percent systemic racism. You know, being married to a South African, I think he was maybe twenty when um, when the change, you know, when party ended in, in in South Africa, and you know what happened there was a conversation. Yeah. So when the changes took place. It wasn't, you know, Mandela refused for, for a long time to do any, you know, to join anything until it was a systematic, systemic change. Yes. It, had, it had to be across every, every aspect of, of, you know, South African society. And the fact that you had people in, in courtrooms and coming in and saying, this is what you did, I'm sorry, this is, you know, the reparations that took place, which I'm not saying, you know, South Africa clearly today has its own issues. and Sure, you know, sure. But they addressed it. They at least and had the conversation. They had the conversation and they addressed it. And I really, you know, I have a, a this is for me something kind of, I don't understand. I just, you know, your, your mind just doesn't understand. It doesn't grasp it. So, so I have a couple of friends of mine. Um, so, so one woman actually... Um, uh, she also had an, a situation that her, um, we found it, uh, I'm just I'm trying to find the right word. So, so she's from Kentucky or lived in Kentucky at some time. Um, and we formed a group, uh, a nonprofit together called, um, I stand parental network. And it's for parents who have, gone through international custody disputes or, or lost their child because the other partner kidnapped the child and went back to their home country. Okay. So he was, yeah. So, so something I, another, another, another issue I'm very familiar with. Um, so she basically had her child kidnapped from her ex who was from Mali and took the girl to Mali and she couldn't get a role. And it was like his visitation, but he left the country kidnapped her and so that was a big issue and unfortunately um you know she didn't get to see her daughter for a couple of years um mitch mcconnell actually was integral in her getting her child back okay huh interesting and she's a, a black american woman um she had had a bout with drugs she, you know, got her PhD. I mean, it's all out there. You can research her. Noel Hunter is her name. She's a dear friend. And she actually, and this is where Mitch was very... Would you say her name was Noel Hunter? Noel Hunter. Dr. Noel Hunter. Okay. Um, and you should have her on your podcast, too. I'm writing her name down right now. Brilliant. I just love her to death. So she, um, he actually, after he helped her get her daughter back into the U.S., and um, he went to her and said, hey, I'm running for office again. You know, can you help? So she was a part of his campaign. And here's a, a black woman from Kentucky, former drug addict, you know, got her PhD. You know, she's like the perfect person sure. to present that community that you probably don't have the vote if you're in the Anyways, long story short, she and I, we have this group 
that we formed. I'm not very active because I have a company now to run, but she, she keeps it going with other members of, of the group who've also been through circumstances like losing their child to the opposite. Um, What's the name parent. of the group again? The group is called um, I Stand Parental Network. It's a nonprofit registered C3, um, not C3PO, but <laughs> 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 a registered nonprofit. Um, anyway, so my point is when I was getting to so she and another friend of mine, um, who's, who rest in peace, and a, an amazing guy, was my cameraman quite a bit. We were sitting together, and they said to me, "You know, Liana, you know, he's also African American." And he's like, "You know, Liana, um, you're the only person." Or actually, no, I wasn't even there. They were having a conversation about me. I think I'd gone to the, the loo or something. And I came back and I'm like, what? And they said, oh, we were just saying that you're the only white person we know that never talked down at us. That oh. we, never felt, we never felt any anything. Right. And I'm like, what do you mean, anything? What do you mean? <laughs> they said, yeah, you know, in the U.S., it's like this. And, you know, my mother's not American, so, you know, she's... German, and I grew up in California, like I said, and I don't recall ever having conversations or questions or, or remarks. I just didn't, I didn't even see color, you know. So I think the problem in the U.S. is is that there is so much divide, and so many people who have been, uh, you know, who who have been brainwashed or told through generations that there's a difference. Well, I think people need to open And we've never addressed what happened with slavery and all, all of this stuff. So the U.S. Has to, has to own that. And I think people as individuals need to open their eyes a little bit wider. You know, you talk of your time when you were younger where you didn't, you can't recall ever having that conversation or anything and that's understandable but people do grow you do get you know you eventually you'll have that black friend who will tell you of their experience um or you'll have that conversation with a total stranger and they'll tell you that they have had certain experiences and the problem is is that individuals will deny that you yeah. know they'll hear it and they won't take it as a new piece of information. They take it as a new piece of propaganda, or they take it as a new, just something that, that, that contradicts their own, uh, their own thoughts on what that issue is. People are afraid of any kind of outside influence on their own personal thinking. And yeah. that closes the door on any conversation. Yeah. It closes the door on any kind of national healing. I don't, I don't think any, personally, I don't think any white person can say it doesn't exist. I don't think any white person can say that, oh, this isn't a problem. And why is that? Is because unless you walked in the shoes exactly. of somebody, then how do you know? I had how a friend, I had a friend from high school just yesterday. Um, it, it's, it's an old um comment that I made on my Facebook page about two weeks ago um, in, in reference to the social uh, uh, unrest in the um, racial unrest in the, in the United States and a guy that I went to high school with in this tiny little rural Ohio town where I was one of less than a handful of black guys at that school. He knows, he knows what I was exposed to he knows what was said 
and what was done. And yet, on that Facebook um, uh, message that I posted, he literally denied that I had experienced racism. And it's like, what are you, what are you, you're not a stranger. You know me from high school. So I don't know. I, I think there's this thing where some white people, they just go on the defensive whenever the subject comes up and there's no need for that. There's no, I don't think anything, uh, there's, there should be no such thing as white guilt. And if I were to tell, I also think that um, if I were to tell someone that they were displaying white guilt, they would probably get pretty pissed at me. But I'm saying that there should be no such thing. In other words, white people shouldn't feel guilty about what happened in the past. But what they should feel bad about is if they are not an ally in the present situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, no I agree. I mean, you know, as I said, you know, I went to high school in Cornland, Idaho, and, and there was, I think, one black family there, right? And even, and, and so the woman, um, we're, we're obviously not Facebook friends because everybody finds their friends over Facebook. Yeah, yeah. So Cecile Moore is her name. And she posted something about how, what, a little bit a little bit about, just recently, a little bit about what she went through in, you know, Cornland, Idaho is like the only black family. And I was appalled by some of the comments. You know, for her, it was brave. She still lives there, I think. Um, you know, and actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. That's very brave, <laughs> considering that there's yeah, almost, I almost. Went, went back. I, don't, I don't know, you know, for certain, <laughs> but someone commented like, well, I think you need to put a, put behind you the pain so that, which, okay, they, I get those words, but they were kind of not allowing her to own the hurt yeah. that she experience they were just saying you need to get over it and and not in a way that was like um you know yes you you, it doesn't mean that she doesn't like all white people because she had you know horrific circumstances or you know had racist comments to her but allow her to at least say yeah you know probably was on the picnic growing up in Lane, idaho in the 70s as the only black family yeah well it's just to me. It's just a cold, callous, just a cold-hearted thing for when people don't acknowledge another person's reality. You know that. Hey, it doesn't matter what that reality is. I think. I'm sorry. I think. I think it also. You know, like I was saying, if you haven't, you know, when we talk about comedy, right? So I hundred percent want your guidance because my next iteration of myself um i want to do i want to do stand-up comedy and i i'm actually because my son has autism you know i have a lot of material that's really not funny but it's really funny and um you you can use that you can use that (laughs) i i i joke about my son's uh death from a heroin overdose so so i think it's perfectly legitimate i mean there's something therapeutic about that Absolutely. Yeah. But it gets to walking through those shoes. You know, yeah. nobody can talk to you about what it's like to lose their child, you know, to whatever cause, yeah. unless they've done that. Exactly. And the same with whether you're white, whether you're black. I mean, I was, I think, the only white girl working at BET in South, Northeast Washington, D.C. Oh, <laughs> now come on now. Now there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of comedic material in that. Absolutely. <laughs> 
You've got I to. Two white bitch that you know, that nobody's gonna like. <laughs> you've got to use that if you get started in comedy. You've got to. You've got to use that. There's a lot of material right there. Yeah, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to be a little bit older, so I'm not such a hottie anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I see her over video here for all you listeners out there. I can see her. <laughs> uh. Yeah, um, I'm heard. I'm told I'm scary on the phone. But if you see all the, the expressions I create, then you get my you get that I'm not as scary uh, in person. No, but. you're not scary. This is a great conversation. Anyway, getting back, yeah, getting. I mean, it wasn't easy being. I, in fact, the only job I think I I really failed at was um, being a teleprompt operator at BET. When the anchor, you know, I would had to feed the paper back then. It wasn't digital. You had to feed the print. And, and it got stuck. And she, oh, she had it at me thinking I did it on purpose. Oh, I mean, wow. No. Wow. I, anyway, <laughs> I don't think it helped that I was dating the director either. <laughs> oh, Wow. Now this sounds like a, this sounds like a good script for some reality TV. <laughs> but yeah, I think getting back to what we're talking about, I do think that the U.S. really maybe needs to go ask itself where, how do we want to be, and reverse engineer how to get there, yeah. because we have so many issues. Um, you know, way we the way we spend our money. I think Congress needs to have term limits. Please, can we just? Oh get gosh, that would be limits? so nice. There's that is the fundamental problem. It's not the president; it's Congress. It's and Congress. We need to change what's going on in the way the country is run. Well, if Congress, if Congress was doing their job, then the president wouldn't be allowed to do all these foolish acts that he's doing. These destructive, foolish, and childish acts, because yeah. Congress is supposed to hold him accountable, and they're not doing that job. And I think term. I'm sorry. And you think what? No, I was going to say, and I think term limits would kind of kickstart this oversight process because they are so intent on keeping that position as a senator or a congressman or woman uh, for as long as they can. But if there were term limits, then they would give these people a different motivation and maybe it would kickstart that process of oversight. Uh, I think... 100%, I agree with you, and I think that if the people want to really demand change, it's, it's you know, there's a saying in, in, in Hebrew that the fish stinks from the head first, right? So we know that the head stinks, but it's a big chunk of the rest of the gills and the bones that are the fundamental problem right now in the U.S., and I think that we're going to take back our country. It's about changing what's going on in Congress there should be term limits. There should be, you know, there's no reason that um, a lot of the gerrymandering is happening because it's all rigged. Every, the system is, it is. so... Absolutely. Extravagant. And that's what needs to change. And I, I mean, I, my, my hope, because I know we're talking a lot of negatives here, but where do I find hope? I find hope in what happened to TikTok the other day in, uh, in, the, in what happened in Tulsa. That they all bought new seats. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. I have hope in, in, in people, you know, who the the youth. You know, my, my daughter. You know, I said we live, we were living in, Cor in Coronado before we came here, and my daughter was one of the organizers on the march out about gun violence. Okay. Now, 
Well, imagine you asking your children this. Hey, so you grew up, you know, the first 10 years of your life in Israel where you had to run into the bomb shelters because of flying missiles. And now you've grown up to a few years in the United States where you have to constantly go under your desk and do, oh, my God, there's a lunatic coming to shoot me drills. So which one do you prefer? <laughs> yeah. my, you know, they say, I prefer the missile because it's not personal. Over and we had two we had two lockdowns in Coronado in the in the three years I was there. Really? Yeah. And you know, nothing happened, but there was well, like, reason somebody broke up, they're in their car with a gun, you know, okay. you know I see. It's also Coronado, so there are a lot of military, there's a lot of people with access with guns. It's also very you know, GOP yeah. Um yeah. and I just remember thinking do I want to raise my kids here? Do I, you know, do I, so, so getting back to the U.S., the hope, the problems we all know, there's sure. so many problems. Sure. Education, you know, we really need to start with education and get Betsy DeVos out. Um, but I really, mental health, huge. Healthcare in general should be for everyone. Education should be for everyone. But I also fundamentally think that how can we, use the next generation how can the next generation look around and say okay we know where we are now how do we want to be where do we want to be in 10 years from now and these are the steps you know yeah. like when you do things you reverse engineer how do we how do we get to that point how can we be more compassionate how can we be more equal because all the people who are saying oh i don't want to pay for all those wellfellers then ultimately they're paying more exactly because we're paying more for those. I know I worked in every level one trauma center in the United States. I'm doing trauma except for Cook County. And I can tell you that if you were, you know, the bills that were left to be paid by the taxpayers, you know, because of the violence. Yeah. That's costly. Say, it's costly. And, yep. and that's the other thing. Why is it that I go to Mexico to have my children get their braces for a thousand two hundred dollars, and as opposed to doing it in the United States for eight thousand dollars, why is it such a difference to buy, you know, cream for my psoriasis that costs four hundred dollars in the U.S. and it's fourteen dollars in Mexico? You know, yeah, yeah. the same what's happening with the pharmaceuticals uh, as well. There's something wrong with that. Let, let me ask you something. I mean, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. You know, you, you, you are really, to me, you're a very intriguing person. <clears throat> there's the, the, the aspect of your background in journalism. Uh, but then there's also this um, entrepreneur, this, uh, this, this startup lady uh, that you are. Uh, if I can just touch before we wrap it up, I want to touch one more time on what you're doing now with Akwai. Uh, where does the road lead you? Where, what are you looking for in the future of Aquai right now? What's going to happen? I know we didn't really speak much about Aquai. You can tell. <laughs> you can see that I actually really studied international relations and you know political science, and I get really wound up and yeah. But it's a great thing to talk about. It's part of that discussion that needs to happen. So I love it. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I think when I look at Aquai. And what we're doing across the globe, a lot of what we're talking about today, you know, I can address in through it, using it as a vehicle for that. So 
for us, for instance, you know, when you're looking at the superstorms that are taking place and flooding, um, which is happening globally, I can imagine I would love to be able to be in a position one day that if something goes down and we need to have, you know, what happens in flooding scenarios is after the flood, the water stagnates and then it becomes very toxic. Yes, sewage and whatnot. Chemical spills. Chemicals. You know, look what happened to Houston after the last flood there. I mean, you know, reinsurers are sending out people. Sometimes they get, you know, there have been deaths, you know. So I can imagine using the fly uh, to be able to be deployed in a moment's notice Mm -hmm. in an area of flooding, um, either, you know, because we can swim through the debris, we can maybe help with search and rescue and, and finding people who need help or after the fact as a, as a post-disaster tool in, in understanding what the water quality is and the nutrient levels and whatnot. Um, I can see it quite, you know, in monitoring ocean temperatures across the globe. Obviously, we're right now involved in, or maybe it's not obvious because I haven't said it, we're in Norway mainly because we're working with sustainable fish farms. So we're working with Kavare that supply whole foods with salmon. And Kavare are leaders in sustainable farming. And by that, I mean leaders. I mean, they don't, you know, their feed, everything from their feed to no pesticides, to the type of cages, to they are incredible protectors and being ocean warriors. Yeah. We like to use a lot are ocean warriors. So they're incredible ocean warriors and they're providing, you know, sustainable um, salmon to top Michelin chefs, to Whole Foods. And if we talk about briefly, you know, about climate change and, and the future of food, so the planet, the way it's growing, at the pace it's growing, we will run out of food by the by 2050, right? Yeah. Because of climate change, because of the population increases. So already we have food security issues. Yes. Much more than we have terrorism. <laughs> how are we going to feed all these people? This yeah. migration that's taking place. So how are we going to feed? So everyone is looking around. We've already pretty much used up all the landmass, and you know we've seen where that's gotten us because you have a lot of disasters happening in the rivers that are flooding yeah. into the oceans and that's where you're getting you know all the corals dying and everything is very circular and if we're not protecting our waterways you know i think it's something like 87 percent or 86 percent of the rivers in the u.s are uh, as no are, 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 are yeah yeah scary my husband and my partner is much better at the, at the stats he like nails them out like that but <laughs> Yeah, so the, the, the water scenario in the U.S. is also just as horrific as in other places around it, and it's increasing that way. And it's just a pity that places like, you know, Nestle want to buy the water to sell it back to us. That's just crazy. So, Akwai, we're, we're very active in looking at the, the best source of feeding the planet with the lowest carbon footprint. And you think and that would be fish farming, sustainable fish farming? Sustainable aquaculture globally is in by the scientists, by the different you know food security um, think tanks. They're all saying aquaculture is our best bet to feed the planet with the lowest carbon footprint. And only if we are cognizant about what we did in incorrectly in agriculture and use that as a warning sign so that when we do aquaculture that were sustainable. So what we're doing at Aquai 
is we're enabling the farmers. You know, they the demand is there. They can't keep up with the demand. Yeah. So you you have to do everyone. You know, trying to keep up. There's shortcuts, but how can we help them to make the smart decisions so those shortcuts are still sustainable? Right. In mind. So our robot are cur- currently in the north of Norway near the Arctic Circle. They're monitoring the water quality. They're monitoring the health of the fish. They're making certain that the cages are are clean and not, you know, producing, um, you know, too much algae or whatever. So they're, you know, we're really working to protect and feed the planet, protect the water, protect our oceans. But in the future, I see us being in freshwater more because a lot of the problems are coming out of the rivers yeah, in yeah. the ocean. Yeah, I see us being global. I mean, again, getting back to the affordability of the robot. Um, you know, as a startup, your your stock your 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 shareholders ask you, great, but you know, where's the revenue? And one thing I say to all of our potential investors before they become investors, and you know, because we're always raising money and all that to to keep growing, is one two things. One. We only use our technology for positive. We do not work with military. And two, there will be a day when we'll have to make a decision, do we go right or left? Is right better for the environment and is left going to make us more money? Mm. And you need to understand that we're going to go in the direction that's better for the environment. Not saying that we can't make money, because we are making money, but might not be, you know, the you know the four hundred billion maybe it'll be three hundred billion. <laughs> <laughs> how many how many employees how many employees do you have now? We're in the process of hiring. So COVID was you know we're we've gone up and down and up and down depending on need and delivery and stuff. So we came to Norway. We opened a subsidiary in Norway at the end of last year at the end of two nineteen, um, uh, based because we had you know customer demand here. And we um, started to hire, but stopped everything because of COVID. Part of our team is in the U.S. Um, they're clearly not coming over now. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of it's a financial question, you know, uh, as a startup. So we were significant um, in, uh, we just received um, an Innovation Norway grant, which we're really happy about. They're supporting what we're doing. Congratulations. We're, Thank you. We're hiring uh, people right now. Um, what kind we, of positions? Yeah, so we're we're looking for robotics programmers or people who are skilled in autonomous navigation because our, our system, while you might have seen on the YouTube, you see a cord, so our systems are still autonomous. So we need people who can, you know, program in like Ross, Python, C++, who can program autonomous navigation as well as slam and machine learning there's a lot of really cool iot stuff going on right now um even alphabet is getting into the machine learning of aquaculture Uh, you know we're working as i said with kavari they're also um investors in the company so we're fortunate there other investors in our company are boost vc adam draper um, which is a very well-known um a venture capitalist family, um, the son of Tim Draper, um, Draper University, another 
companies that are very successful. Arlen Hamilton, who you should also have on your show, um, is an investor. She is a woman who started out um, in production. She's a black lesbian female um, who kind of just went to Silicon Valley and said, I'm going to be a venture capitalist. I think she slept on the airport floor for months and months and months before she got her first investment. Wow. I met her on Twitter. She started doing that when I started my company. So I was like inspired, like, hey, really cool what you're doing. And then when she finally, you know, got some investment monies, she invested in a quai. So what's her name again? Her name is Arlen Hamilton. I'm sorry, the first name again? Arlen. Arlen. A-R-L-A-N. Hamilton, yeah. and she was on the cover of uh, Fast Company as like, you know, she only invests in underestimated founders, so uh, LGBTQ, you know, females, I see. Yeah. She's actually working, you know, one of her latest LPs is Mark Cuban. Oh. I know she I think even um, something with Celine Will, um, Williams and maybe Magic Johnson invested in one of her portfolio companies. I don't know if she helped with that deal or not, but she's huge advocate of helping, you know, underestimated founders. So you're connected to this. It sounds like a very influential network of, of investors or potential investors. So that I'm not. She is. <laughs> well, but then you're connected through, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, just no, I'm going to be humble here. I'm <laughs> Uh, no, I'm just, I actually just posted on Facebook today. You can check. It's two years ago today that she and I had a had a conversation in San Diego as a keynote at San Diego Startup Week, where I, she was the keynote and I was the interviewer okay. uh, of Ireland. So you can see uh, see that as well. But um, interesting. Yeah. So if you if you look at, we have been able to successfully get some investment by unique people clearly people who are um a little bit different than the rest i would say yeah. they see us, they get us as people they get our grit they get our passion they like to tell yeah because i was going to say because a quai is a little bit different <laughs> i mean it's a, it's it's uh it's not your average startup um like I said, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated with what you guys are, are doing, and your focus is on such an important issue. You know, c- keeping the ocean clean, um, sustainable protein production. You know, through through these fish farms and whatnot. So you guys are are you know, of course, the money making thing is one thing, but you guys are just doing a good hearted effort towards making the world better. That's the way I see it, anyway. I mean, it's frustrating at times, too, I'll be honest. You know, there's a lot of people who want to talk about sustainability or talk about impact investing that really aren't. So, you know, right now, the way it is, if you're doing a DARPA project, you're fat, you'll get or something where the government can maybe use your technology in a militaristic way. Yeah. You'll get it. If you're doing something like what we're doing, where that's like a deal breaker and it's really about positive impact, you're going to have a harder, harder go at it. You know I can I mean? see that, yeah. If you had a different focus or if you had a different 
motivation, this could very easily be sold to the military. I could picture the Navy. I mean, some kind of weaponized fish out there jacking up people and they would never see it coming. That, I mean, you know, that's something that could be marketed to the military, but you choose not to do that. And I think that says something about your focus. It says something about your, your character and it says something about where your heart is. I think, you know, it gets back to what we said at the beginning of our talk, which was, you know, I think that both my partner and I had seen, you know, some, some imagery, horrific pictures of, of society. And for us, it was really about doing something positive and not be proliferating more, you know, yeah. harm yeah. Um, in the name of whatever. So I think that we, you know, we're really focused on that. But I, I really do wish that those who can, you know, I know that, you know, different entities and philanthropists organizations do exist, but there's really not enough being done to help companies like ours to scale. You know, there's a lot of love being done if you have an idea and it's on a napkin and you want to get, you know, give 20%, 50% of your company away for a little bit of money in the beginning. But, you know, we didn't do that. We, we bootstrap for the most part with the help of the, you know, I think about 20 angels and, you know, three VCs, yeah. uh, growth included, I should put them in as well. Will Bunker, who grew up on a catfish farm, he was one of our, he was the first VC who invested in us oh. when we were only a year old. And um, he got it. But I think, you know, now we're at a phase where we're scaling, where we have orders, we have, you know, MVP, most viable product, we have market penetration at the lowest hanging fruit, you know, uh, market, which is a great market to be in. You know, it's a huge market. It's growing, yeah. I think, almost 7% each year. So, you know, the technology is solid. Orders are there. But still, to go from to go from where we are to, you know, a scale company, to get to the point where I said we want to be, there's not a lot of support there. There's not a lot of, you know, investment going in there. They're right. like, oh, Come to us in a year from, like, come to us and, you know, when you're doing a series. They want to wait you out and they want to see what you're able to do on your own before they commit to a larger investment. Well, that that's true in some sources, but the way it works is, you know, we started five years ago. The first thing was, yeah, prove you can make a robotic fish. So we did. Then the next thing was, oh, yeah, great. Now prove, prove you can get customers, which we did. Now it's like, oh. Prove you can set up a production line. You know, it's like every mountain you climb, there's another mountain. You know, so well, when it comes to the production line, um, is it is it just Simeon who is doing you know the soldering or the hammer and nails or whatever? <laughs> how many people? How many people are with him in the actual production of the units? So the units themselves, we three D print. Like I said, our, our Patents are in the mechanics and design, and we 3D print or SLS print what you see, you know, the internal and the outer shell, which looks like the, the clownfish, which our fish, by the way, is called Namu, um, yes. named after <laughs> yeah. goddess of the sea. Um, and so we are, we have sensors and cameras. So we have three cameras on board and an array of sensors from oxygen salinity, pH, temperature, depth, sonar. So the sensors we get off the shelf along with the cameras. So, you know, we bring that in and then everything is assembled in-house together. We have anywhere right now, 
between five to seven. We've delivered, I think, eight the units. We have orders for almost 90 this year. So we're hiring more people. Okay. We know it takes like two people two days to assemble a fish. So it's really about how many fish we now have to assemble and how many people we can afford to hire. I to see. So, but don't you know, I would imagine they need when you hire them, they probably need a period of instruction to learn how to to put Nemo together. Yeah, or, it's pretty pretty easy. Again, getting back to Simeon's, you know, him his mindset and the way he grew up. And also, he really wanted it to be so simple that the farmers could put it together. Oh, that okay. Go to, you know, his whole thing is about also teaching robotics. So he wanted to be able to have it so simplistic, not require a 200-page manual. It's very Lego. It's like Ikea. You know, you just pictures, yeah. a few pictures, boom, boom, boom. Very well, I was, was going to joke and say it's it's got to be more complicated than Simeon being in a garage with a roll of masking tape and a pair of scissors. Maybe a hammer yeah. and nails, but it actually, from what you're saying, it, it's not really all that much more complicated than that, because all the, because because the 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 um, a lot of the technology is already preformed, so it's just a matter of, in a way, plugging it in and putting it together. Putting it together um, again. He has you know 20, 25 years in manufacturing, so when he designed it, he designed it with manufacturing simplicity in mind. Very smart. Um, well, that was very crucial. Sure. And also, he wanted to be able to, you know, that anyone, you didn't have to be a roboticist to put it together. You could be someone who, you know, needed it for your village in Africa. Who do I know? And put it together because there's, you know, the, the water, the water yeah. is rising, you know, and you need to be able to know what's going on. So, you know, still, the way we do it now is we assemble in house. Um, we do have people who obviously are skilled programmers, skilled electronic engineers. Um, we're a very diverse international team. So, for instance, our guy who did all of our hardware, he's Italian. He works for NASA. He has some things up on Mars. Uh, the <laughs> robot, you know, so he works for us and NASA. I love him to death. I'm trying to get him to, to stay permanently in Norway with us. Um, he goes back and forth. Um, we have Simeon, the South African, you know, there's me who's, you know, for whatever, I'm American. I'm also, my mom's German. Um, we have a guy who is from Turkey, um, who's skilled. He actually worked in, uh, was, was going to school during Katrina in, he was living in New York at the time and he helped him also. You know, it's really important that we have people who are trying to help others yeah. and, and, uh, have some, uh, experience with, let's say, um, uh, first responder aspects of them. Um, he's also a skilled uh, engineer, clearly. Um, so he's new. He's actually going to start in July. He's living. He just graduated out of Stavanger. We just hired a another guy who um, graduated um, from I think it's um, Minnesota and Oslomet. So yeah. he's in Norway. Just built his own drone on the water, so oh. he's kind of a really, really good. I think uh, he'll be a good addition to the team. We're we're hiring locally because of COVID. Um, we do have a guy in, in you know, a couple people in the U.S. As I said, um, speaking of locally, where is the location up in northern Norway that you mentioned? What's the name of it? It's it's on Klare Indre. I wonder is so, that is that up in Troms? 
Yeah, so it's lower. So you went it's south of Bodo. South of Bodo. Okay, yeah. So uh, low, low Yeah, low <laughs> yeah, low, low Fulton. Okay, yeah, up in that area. Yeah, low Fulton, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, okay. so we have, um, we do a lot of our, our, you know, building and testing there. We also, for now anyway, because I ha was doing a lot of traveling, we have also um, something more local in the area of Drammen uh, as well. Um, so we, yeah, we're, you know, the thing I'm learning in, in Norway is that people don't like to travel so much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so much. So it's hard finding some engineers. That's true. I just love what you're doing. I'm gonna I'm gonna pay attention. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be watching. <laughs> I want to yeah. see I want to see what happens with Aquai. I just think that I mean, you know any programmers who are you know like I said we're we're hiring a very international diverse group. I think. Um, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a CEO, so it's female-led, so they have to be able to deal with that. Um, and unfortunately, I, some people have a problem with that, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't know, you know, I, have, I grew up with brothers, you know, and, uh, oh. so I, 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 I have a sister too, but I, I can relate really well to the guys, you know, and stuff. Um, but yeah, they have to be able to understand that. How do you find investors for what you're doing? I mean, you're not sitting on a street corner with your hat in your hand asking for people to throw change at you, but it's kind of the same concept. How do you do that? Who do you figure out who to approach and what do you say to them? Well, a big part of being a successful journalist is getting access yeah. to a new subject. So for me, getting back to what you asked, you know, a while ago, how does that translate? So as a lot of journalists are actually very successful, um, startup founders and i think because a lot of those characteristics translate over so you know i camped out on one guy's porch for a week in cuba to get that interview which i ultimately got and you know we're still persistent <laughs> years later um so yeah i think getting access is important so i also I know how to write a paragraph. I know how to write that email that says, hey, this is what I'm doing. That's how I got water. I sent a paragraph and said, a video, this is what we're doing. They're like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. <laughs> so I, it's just about getting the access. Um, uh, Twitter, Arlen, I, so I found Arlen on Twitter. Okay. Um, I think also, you know, Adam Draper, who invested in this, I sent, I think, a good four years in a row, quarterly updates to to specific people that I would like to invest in us. I see. And after he read, cons you know, consistency is key to any startup founder and then seeing your journey because you're right. They want to see if you can do it. You can have a great team, great tech, but if you don't have the chutzpah and the grit then how, uh, and a good market. So over time he saw, wow, you know, I would, I would write emails to everyone from Wozniak to Bezos to Benioff Hey, it's me again, Robot Fish Lady. How you doing? Yeah. What's going on this quarter? Well, and some respond. I've had responses. Well, you know that's very inspiring. You know, I I think I that's inspiring for me as a, as a podcaster because I, I love doing podcasts. I mean, it it puts me in contact with very cool and interesting people like yourself. Um, but there's also that monetization aspect. You know, how do how do I monetize this and I like the inspiration that I'm getting from what you're saying. And it's basically 
just contact them. What's the worst thing they can say is it's, it's no, they can say no, but just, just, just keep following up. You know, here's another episode that I did. What do you think? Uh, I had, um, Dr. Uh, Howell Wexler. Um, he was a former head of the, um, children's health division of the CDC and he's and a journalist and a Peace Corps guy. You know him. I so I listen to your podcast. Oh yeah, well there you go. So so he after that podcast, that's so cool. You listen to that. I guess I'm not used to people listening to me, but uh, I'm going to change that though. But uh, after I was done with that episode with Howell, uh, we talked for maybe another 15 minutes, and he suggested that I should try and get in touch with NPR Radio, and see if there might be some place for me uh-huh. there. Um, and not only NPR, you have um, you have NPR. So um, I I worked on the Derek McGinty show out of um, DC. I don't think he still has a show anymore. The Diane Reem show when I was going to school at AMU W uh, American University, which WAMU was on the campus then at the time. Um, and you you have Amer- you have NPR, you have American Public Radio. Um, there are, there are different, you know, obviously pod, you know, the thing is, is that, and he's, he's like probably closer to my age. So back when we were starting out, you had to pitch to them. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I collected my rejection. I actually, I had a friend of mine pitch for me cause I was afraid of rejection, but he collected the rejection. One, <laughs> 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 You have to get used to, you know, rejection, even with investments, it's, you know, I think every thousand knows you'll get a one. And trust me, I've had I've, I've had a, more than a thousand. My kids who are looking for jobs now, like, look, every you know, knock on a hundred doors, and maybe you get an entry. You know, yeah, a foot in the door somewhere as a job. And it's really a numbers game. In terms of, you don't have, you don't need the NPRs or the New York Times or the ABCs of the world anymore. You can do all this on your own. That's the beauty about what's happening in the digital age. And, and sure. And I'm, and I'm, I, I was going to say I'm doing it on my own. You know, I have the podcast, but that whole aspect of monetizing it, there is the challenge. You know, if I was hired to do this for NPR or for American public radio or somebody like that, then the monetization is in the salary I would get for doing it. But podcasting on my own. Yeah. My voice is getting out there. The voice of tens of thousands of podcasters is out there, but the problem, yeah, the, excuse me, huh? you have a great voice. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I don't know. You I'm just, do huh? You should do radio. You have a great voice. Oh, thank you. Well, anybody in the radio business out there, give me a shout. Voiceover work too. I don't know if you're doing voiceover work, but you should, that's how you could be monetizing and making a living from your voice also. It's your voiceover. That's interesting that you mentioned that. I, I've done a couple of gigs for voiceover. And here just yesterday, I got an offer for a new gig. It's a Norwegian uh, gentleman who's doing a television production and he needs an American voice for, for a certain part of this production that he's doing. So I got that gig as well. Um, yeah. But the, but I, and that's cool. To, that's fun to be able to do that. And, 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 but but this this whole thing with the podcast or or potentially working in radio, I'm just trying to find I'm just trying to find who I can talk to, where I can go, how I can present what I can do. Um, 
Because it's all I, it's about having connections. I don't know anybody in that. It's also about, you know, this is okay. You know, we did a lot of USA bashing today. So <laughs> yes. I feel that we need to give something back about what is also very unique and absolutely amazing about the States. And that is anyone can make it. Yes. Anyone. I know the, the, I know the playing field is not level. This I know, but there's still something very magical. If you have a good idea, if you have a a good format, if you have, you know, it's not just to have the podcast and the connection. You've got to have something that is unique, something that sets it apart, something that stands out. And if it, you know, it's like that, (coughs) it's like the reality TV, (coughs) the things that the duck dynasties, these things were so unique because the, people stood out. There was something special about them. So I think that also it's about identifying how your podcast is unique. What is it offering that is different from other podcasts? You you see what I'm saying? See, Yeah. And there's a challenge there. There's a challenge there for me to be able to put words on that. I feel like what I'm doing is the greatest thing in the world. Otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. But how do I, how do I vocalize that? How do I put that in black and white on a letter to, to the right person? There's the challenge. It's, it's, I have to try and pull myself out and look at this from the outside looking in. And I find that difficult so far. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's one of the keys is yeah. to say, okay, this is my, sh- this is my shit. This yeah. is my form. But, this is well, but the yeah. but the way you approach that whole funding process or, f- or finding people to fund, uh, you know what you're doing with Aquai that that is inspiring to me because it's basically just stop thinking and just do it. Just approach people and see what happens. That's basically and, what it is. And I would be, it is that a lot of that is you know being thick skinned and I'm not, but keep going <laughs> at it. I do take it personal. One guy told me that. He invests in lots of companies and can identify a, a, a great potential CEO, and I'm not one. And he's oh boy, ouch! And that, that hurt, you know. And I was, you know, I, I that gave me fuel to my fire. Yeah, it was like I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna say your name one day. Not <laughs> <laughs> the day, but I'm gonna be there, and I'm gonna say, this guy said this, and thank you for saying that because I wanted to prove you wrong. Um, You know, so there is, there is that. I think it's also being very targeted on where you go to, to find or do the homework. I think a lot of people don't want to do the work. And I say, really do the research. This gets back to whether it's your country, your, your, your Congress people, the issues, do your homework, read and say, okay, who are the people who are investing in podcasts? Who are the ones who are, really interested in getting the spoken word out or, you know, you know, whatever the format is or whatever the the focus is, you know, know who that pool is. I, I made the mistake and I just, you know, I just shot everywhere. I'm a startup. Everybody gives money, come to me. And only after years did I, did I learn to be more targeted in my shooting and, you know, (laughs) that, yeah, this is these are the people who do robotics. Yeah. All of that Silicon Valley crowd, ninety percent won't do hardware. Yeah. Why am I knocking on their door? And I used to take it personal. Well, maybe now you do do hardware because I'm special. You know, I you saw everything sometimes as a personal challenge for good and bad. Um, 
but yeah, so be targeted. Yeah, um, yeah. Have, have a have a understand your uniqueness. And that I think that's the biggest challenge. Again, I, I don't know. I'm I'm working on how do I vocalize what I feel about what I can offer. I know what I can offer, but how do I put words on that? I know what kind of a radio show or what kind of a podcast I could have if I had the proper proper funding, which would then give me more time to put into the podcast. But you know, whether it's a podcast or a possible radio radio show, I know what I can do. But what's special about it, and how do I vocalize that? How do I share that vision with the right person? So this is a challenge that I am looking forward to working out. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it happen. I'm gonna be able to pitch myself eventually. Um, yeah, think, so, sooner rather than later. <laughs> I, mean, I think you know it's interesting that some of in my and I, I suffer from this too. I, I'm told you need it's not clear. Your pitch deck isn't clear. It needs to be. And I'm like, well, but I'm a communicator. I've got a lifetime of communicating. Yeah. You know, sometimes we're not the best communicator of our ability to communicate <laughs> yeah you know if someone asks me what you're all about what is a quiet all about oh my gosh i can describe that i can do that but if you ask me what my podcast is about all of a sudden i'm stuttering and um uh uh, uh you know there, there's it's, it's a totally different thing it's it's that vantage point is what makes it difficult you know the vantage point of being the thing you're trying to market that's that's difficult. Well, it's, also, it's also a different, it's a little bit different. You know, every step of the game is a startup, regardless of if you're putting, you know, like Ireland putting together a VC fund or me, a robot, you, you know, a podcast, you, there are steps. Yeah. And one of the first steps is being able to communicate your idea, which is different than the actual podcast. So, you know, yes, there are pitch decks. There's so much information on YouTube and in startup university and things like that, that you can learn how to just do a pitch deck. You know, I'm happy to help you, you know, uh, uh, with that. So the first step is how do I make a, you know, how do I communicate my idea, whether it's a pitch deck or a pitch video or a pitch, you know, 20 second bumper of your show with your voice, because it is such a fabulous voice, you know, know, or an element, you know, my pitch decks have a video in it because I know that I can tell everyone robot fish, but until they see it, until they see the fish, pictures are a thousand words, right? Yeah. 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 So it's one of the steps. You keep talking about my voice. Why is my wife always telling me to shut up? Be quiet. <laughs> my voice is so nice. It's not, it's not how you're saying it. It's what you're saying. Ah, you shut up. <laughs> I see. Okay. That explains a lot. <laughs> wow. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work out that thing uh, about how to pitch this. And, and, that, and that is one thing that I found out through my research. Doing like a 20-second, maybe a 30-second pitch of my podcast is, is, is a big step. The first step was having consistency. And I think I've got that. This episode, I think, will be number 40, 40. Um, so there's the consistency right there. Um, so step one, I've done. Uh, and then step two was making some sort of a pitch podcast, 30 seconds at the most. That's step two. And then step three is finding the right place to send that pitch. So maybe you and I can talk after we, uh, after we sign off here, because it's, I'm at the, I'm in a position now to where I can start sending myself out there. Well, I tell you what, 
I help you on what I've learned and you take, you know, one of the main rules of startup world is gather information, throw, not, no one's right. No one has a right way to do it. Take what resonates with you, yeah. throw the rest out. It's very individual. So, this is what I think. You got to trust your gut. That's the numero uno, trust your gut. Yeah. Um, so I help you with what I've learned and you help me with, you know, in terms of, being a stand-up comic. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think because you are a very good speaker, you speak in such a descriptive way, and you have a sense of humor, and that's a good combination. That's really all you need to start. So when you get ready to start, you just give me a holler. I can, I can, uh, I can guide you through, or I can give you my suggestions on the writing process, you know, where to get it from. Uh, I can give you my, my yeah, you, you just say the word. I'll help you out with that. And then, and then, like you, if, if um, I feel the urge, then I'll just be like, summertime. Ah. <laughs> There's a voice in there. There's a voice in there. Sing it, girl. Fish are jumping, <laughs> and the cotton is high. The aquai fish are jumping. <laughs> <laughs> and... They're monitoring <laughs> the waterways of Norway. Ah, uh, listen to you. <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, listen. Don't you fly. <laughs> we should do, we should do a Kwai the musical and you can have the starring role right there. No, I, I actually, it's funny. Um, so my eldest daughter, who's 35, she has an amazing operatic voice. My grandmother was an opera singer in, in Prague. I love opera. I can't stand musical theater. I mean, like, you know, yeah. musical. Yeah. My other daughter, who is an amazing singer, has reverb in her voice. She's actually studying acting. She's here in Oslo with us. She's 18. You know, any acting gigs for an American 18-year-old? She would have it. <laughs> Um, but no, I, 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 I think I'll, I'll save my little moments of joy singing for, um, for when I do comedy. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> do, well, no, no high theater productions, uh, no musical. <laughs> <laughs> no, you let me know whenever you're interested in stand up, I can help you maybe book a gig or two, or at least get you on an open mic to start out with. I think, <laughs> I think you'd be good at it. You know, I started studying music in college and I was so horrified by the video of the playback that I changed my major to politics. <laughs> well, my first love when it comes to art, <clears throat> my first love is, is music. That's, you know, this, this standup thing is, is it seems to be the focus now, but that's just because I'm in a, that's just where my creativity is going right now towards writing for my standup. But my first love is writing and performing music. Um, that's my first love. First love is my music. Is music? Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I loved what I heard. I love, you know, even my, my eldest daughter. So she sometimes performs at the Carnegie Club in New York City. She sings now jazz and blues. And, you know, I, I, that's what I love. Um, yeah. I just, I loved, I loved when you sang the other night. And so if you do other shows, especially if you're doing shows in drama and stuff like that, I'm, you know, when I'm down there, yeah, let me know. Let me know when you're in town. I was in Drummond last night, actually, uh, here in Drummond at Union City. You know what? I bombed. <laughs> oh, 
But that's because, you know, I was trying out new material and that's what happens when you try out new material for the first time. And then I, I planned on the entire set being new material. And it was a small crowd. I think there was only 15 people out in the audience. So there was no damage done. It was, uh, you know, when I, when I bomb, I think I've only bombed once and it hurt my feelings and I actually felt bad. Uh, the other times when I've bombed, I've enjoyed it because it, it taught me, okay, well, this material either A, isn't going to work, or B, if it's going to work, I need to re remold it. I need to work on it. So it's part of the learning process. I don't mind when I bomb, and I quite, I quite frankly expect it when I'm working on new material. It's new. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to work. I have to try it. That's interesting. So... You gotta have guts. Got to, we talked about yeah. guts before. If you're gonna do stand up, you have to have a certain. It, it's a different kind of guts. You have to really because the feedback, whether it's positive or negative, is literally in your face and literally instantaneous. Well, I've had a gun in my head. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like having a gun to your head. <laughs> yeah. um, I wonder if uh, no. You know, I, I just, you know, some, it's those insecurities, you know, you can do all this really high risk stuff and, you know, knock on a thousand doors, but rejection is just a hard one. But me. you know what, Liana, but you know what, Liana, that is probably the, one of the top reasons why I do stand up. Um, I've had some issues with rejection and with, oh, wow. Hi. Hello. Hi. This is Max. Hi, Max. For those who are listening, uh, they are so sad for them that they can't see this beautiful image I see now of mother and daughter. Hi. <laughs> she was supposed to go to school in London, University in London, starting the fall, and unfortunately everything's online now because of COVID. Yes, so yeah. She's been on with us, and she's, you know, yeah, you know, breaking in here, trying to, meet people and you know do some acting well you definitely have the look of an entertainer you're quite beautiful i'm just gonna say that i, voice. I uh <laughs> so what so, uh, so what is your main thing you're trying to get into is it is it acting or is it singing or is it both you'd like to be an actress yeah well i have a 14 year old daughter who's uh, taking theater classes here locally and I hope she makes it as an actress because I know when I get old, I'm going to be very expensive. Um, adult diapers cost a lot. So <laughs> my daughter needs to be a good actress. So maybe the two of you can hook up and, and carry each other along the way. <laughs> not, not, not that I expect you uh, to, to be wearing adult diapers well, one day, I but I, I want you to support me when I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, nice, nice to meet you as well. Oh, how about that? That was a nice little cameo appearance. <laughs> She's beautiful. I know. See, I like to say I'm the oven. None of my kids look like me. I'm like this skinny, you know, blonde, white, strawberry, <laughs> bad hair life, not bad day. So, you know, my kids are these, you know, kind of, they're all mixture of Middle Eastern and, and, and you know, European, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Gorgeous. They look like I wish I looked. So I'm the oven. I like to say I'm just the oven. <laughs> <laughs> No, I uh, I just want to say I, I didn't mean for this podcast to turn into like a uh, a counseling session for me and my podcast and all that stuff. But what what I was getting at was that that 
process, because I like talking to people who are faced with challenge and people who are trying to expand their horizon. And so, so that, that, that's why I started talking with you about that whole aspect of approaching people to, to, to sponsor your project, you know, to invest in what you're doing. And that demands a certain amount of, of uh, confidence in what you're doing. And that's part of what makes you an admirable person, the confidence that you have in the entire concept that is Aquai. I think it's, it's, it's a beautiful and fascinating thing to watch. Um, uh, I barely know you, but I respect you so much just because of what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's such a crazy thing to imagine someone designing a motorized fish. <laughs> you know, it sounds a little silly, but you guys are applying that in such a meaningful way. You guys are applying that in a way that can be, that is quite instrumental to, um, to keeping, um, to keeping the production of, of, of protein that w- which we need to survive. You're keeping that production honest. You're keeping it clean. You're monitoring what's happening and that's vital. I think that's so important. So you're doing important work and you're doing it quite well and you're showing an immense amount of, of confidence uh, that whole that whole process of, of of grabbing up investors it's fascinating to me I, I am motivated by that thank you I'm glad it inspires you know I'm I always do things and think well if I can do it anybody can I don't ever you know it gets back to what you said though you know I can sell what Simeon's doing because he's such a fantastic brain and the technology is so brilliant what makes it even more brilliant is that it's so affordable. You know, you can spend millions of dollars and it's being done. Um, but what we've actually been able to achieve was to create an affordable system, which means it goes into the hands of many. And, you know, we're, we do make robots, but the idea is that we're a data company yeah. and we're gathering all this data and it's a full circle. So you, the, the, our customers actually just log on to their computer and a web dashboard pops up and they get all the information. So the robot, we believe in proximity to the source and data acquisition. So the robot gets up close, whether it's in aquaculture and coral reefs and dams or dam or inspection or whatever the need is. And then the data goes to our back end, goes to the cloud. And then we push the information to our web dashboard that the customer logs into. So it's an end-to-end solution. I was going to ask you about the cloud uh, thing. Do you guys have your own cloud or, or do you use a cloud service? Because we use, that's... Um, yeah, we use a cloud service <coughs> okay. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. We have our own servers, but we do use a cloud service. Um, you know, a lot of what we're doing, so the robot sends and transmits the data either you know through, either through a localized network or you know just bounces it off bounces it off and it then goes to the cloud to our backend okay and, and, um, yeah. well i uh again uh leon i i so much respect for what you're doing it's it's fascinating work i'm going to keep following the progress of uh, your progress personally and, and also acquire. I like to think that I have made a new friend. You have made a new friend. And as you know, in Norway, it's kind of difficult to make new friends. <laughs> you, you know what? When I lived up North, um, we still have our home up in, up in Finnmark on uh, the Island of Ceylon. Uh, and up there, 
it's easy to get to know people. But here down south, there's a certain aloofness, there's a certain skepticism, a certain coldness that is re- it, it, it demands an effort to break through that and make new friends. That's a long way of saying I agree with you. It's hard to make yeah. friends here. Same conversation I had an hour before we got on the call because <clears throat> we work mostly in the north. Yeah. And, you know, we're just like, oh, I really miss the people in the north. I really love them. It's totally different. But, and when you're busy like we are, you know, it's hard. You don't have the time to, like, cultivate. But, you know, we try. We, we're very active with the ocean community here. Other players who are trying to do positive work in the ocean uh, space because we don't see ourselves just as an aquaculture company. We're, you know, uh, an ocean data robotics company so you know we try to to get in i, I think it's a beautiful country it I, is. Love the, the, I love the, the, the you know the scenery i love the the, the political uh, support that you get is a combination of capitalism and socialism social, well the social but, services uh, is what make this country uh, the fantastic place that it is um yeah. I, I think I think of how I was able to spend the first eight, nine, ten months of my daughter's life with her away from work, still getting paid, job was still there, and I could stay home with my daughter. And you just cannot do that in the United States. But here, because of the way the social services are set up, I was able to have that time with my daughter. Almost almost yeah. the entire first year of her life, she spent it ex- almost ex- exclusively with me. And it's a beautiful thing. I agree, and I think that if the U.S. would, we'd have a better infrastructure with the family, the basis of the basis of families, if we were able to do that instead of, what, two weeks or three weeks if you have a kid, not at all if you're a guy. Yeah, But, yeah. Um, no, I do think that we should, you know, really look at freedom around the world. In the U.S. should look at how other countries have achieved the combination of capitalism and socialism, yeah. Israel in the same way. And we should look about how we can improve our own country because true yeah. freedom is being able to pursue happiness and live in a way that you're not in fear. Yeah. From falling down or, you know, from police brutality, whatever the case may be. So I, I have hope. I have hope the next generation sees that. And um, I've enjoyed our time talking. Thank you. Um, I'm happy to help you uh, any way I can. Um, Thank you. So that you. Thank you. As well. So thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I truly appreciate it. I'm glad to call you friend. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Miss uh, Liana Thompson. Thank you. Ciao. Bye, everybody. I'm coming home. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm coming home. I'm coming home, yes I am